Test one, test two, test three. Good night or good evening. Merry Christmas. I'll tell you, I love Christmas carols. I love singing those songs. I think they're so rich and deep. Beautiful, beautiful theology contained in them. This Saturday is our Christmas outreach. So if you're going to be a part of that, um, plan to come to our big uh, mandatory meeting this Friday right here in the sanctuary here at 6.30 p.m. That's where we're all going to get our assignments and kind of go through how Saturday is going to look. So 6.30 on Friday and then most of the morning um, into the early afternoon on Saturday. Would you turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Zechariah? It's page 1091. Nothing like some good old-fashioned apocalyptic literature to get us in the Christmas spirit. One Bible scholar has called Zechariah the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic, and eschatological of all the writings of the Old Testament. This book has been called the book of revelation of the Old Testament. Many visions and prophecies concerning last days. And so if you're into that, you came to the right place tonight, and this is the right book for you to study. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful that victory is coming. We are grateful that one day you will rule physically, literally, upon this earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, that lifts our spirits, no matter how dark it might get in our days. You are with us, and there is a great victory coming. Thank you for that promise. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, just to get our bearing, uh, these are the divisions of the Old Testament books. You have the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then there's history, Joshua through Esther. Then you have the books of poetry. Then you have the books of prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. We are in the minor prophet section. And there's 12 of them, and they can be divided into different ways. There are three prophets that bring messages to the Gentile nations. There are two that bring messages of prophecy to the northern kingdom of Israel. Four that bring to the southern kingdom of Judah. And then there are three prophets that are called post-exilic. Haggai. Zechariah and Malachi. Now, post-exilic, what does that mean? Well, it means after the exile. Great, what does that mean? This is a chart you're familiar with. This is when there was a northern kingdom of Israel. They got taken captive in 722 B.C. That left the southern kingdom of Judah. They got taken captive in 586 B.C. by Babylon. This is pre-exilic. All these prophets are pre-exilic, before. The Jews went to Babylon for 70 years in exile. The prophets that prophesied during that time are called exilic, during the exile. 70 years after that, the Jews were allowed to return back to Jerusalem, and that's where you have these three prophets that began to prophesy after their return back. Now, you'll notice that Zechariah and Haggai are contemporaries. They ministered at the same time. And so the same circumstances um, concern them both. You remember, as I told you last week when we studied Haggai, 50,000 Jews were allowed to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. Their leader was a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, the governor. The high priest was a guy by the name of Joshua. 
They were allowed to return home to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And right when they got there, they started. They were all gung-ho. They finished the foundation of the temple. Then they experienced some opposition, and they stopped working on the temple for 16 years. 16 years, they stopped the work. God sent Haggai the prophet and said, you're the people that keep saying, now is not the time to build my house, yet you have all the time in the world to build your own houses. Haggai says, get back to work. Begin again on rebuilding the temple. Zechariah is also encouraging the people to rebuild the temple. And he does it by sharing with them some visions and some prophecies concerning what God is eventually going to do with that temple, with Jerusalem, with the nation of Israel, and with their coming king. And it's very encouraging. It's like Zechariah is saying to them, I know right now as you look around, your temple's in ruins, your city's in ruins, you're surrounded by all these Gentile powers. But go to work because God has big plans for this place. And so these visions and these prophecies are meant to encourage. encourage. There are eight visions recorded in the book of Zechariah. And as it turns out, he received all eight of these visions on the same night. That must have been one bizarre night, don't you think? I don't think he got... A lot of sleep. Let's look at the first one. Skip down to verse 7 of Zechariah chapter 1. It says, On the 24th day of the 11th month, month, which is the month Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse... And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We've walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. So in this first vision, Zacharias sees a patrol, a military patrol of mighty angelic warriors. They're riding horses, red, sorrel, and white. Their main leader is out in front, sitting on a red horse. They've been sent to and fro throughout the whole earth, and it appears that in this vision, they've returned from their mission, and they report, we've roamed to and fro throughout the all earth, and we can assure you that now the earth is resting quietly. It's all at peace. The idea is these guys have gone out, these warriors, and they have defeated all of the enemies. Everyone that would be against God and his people. And they come back, work's done. Peace on planet earth. And it says that they're standing among the myrtle trees. Myrtle trees are tough trees. They're laurel trees. They're like evergreens. Real hardy. Very, very hard to kill. Like Israel, the nation. How long that nation has lasted. You can't bring that nation down. And so the encouragement here is, Israel, you are going to last. You're going to make it. And all of your enemies will one day be destroyed and you will be at peace. Very encouraging. And of course, I believe that is looking ahead to the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, and the millennial kingdom that he puts in place on the earth. Okay, look at verse 18 of chapter 1. 
He says, then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So here you are in a dream, and all of a sudden you see these four horns. Now what do horns represent in the Bible? We learned this when we studied the book of Daniel. Horns represent kings and kingdoms. They represent very powerful Gentile pagan kingdom nations or empires that have done harm to Israel. The four here are probably Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, which eventually morphs into a revived Roman Empire. So here's all these kingdoms of man that have given Israel such a hard time. Well, look at verse 20. The vision continues. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Okay, a craftsman is a very skilled, tough workman. Someone who is skilled in wood or stone or metal. So I want you to think of a big burly lumberjack with a chainsaw. A big, powerful man with powerful power tools. Tough guy. He sees four of them. Verse 21, and I said, what are these coming to do? The craftsmen. So he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So here's an image of these guys coming at the horns with their, their chainsaws. Absolutely destroying them. Here's a vision where God says, all those Gentile powers of man, all of the kingdoms of man that have been hostile against Israel and God's people will one day be absolutely destroyed. No more. Again, a prophecy I believe that's looking forward to the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. And the establishment of the kingdom in Jerusalem. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then I raised my eyes and looked. And behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem. To see what is its width and what is its length. So this is odd. Here goes a guy with a measuring rod, a measuring line. And he's going to go out and he's going to measure a city with a measuring line. Now we normally measure walls and houses. You don't think of measuring a city with a measuring line. Actually, the ancient cities were small enough where you could almost do that. When David took over the city of Jerusalem, also called the city of David, the whole city only sat on about 12 to 13 acres. Had a population of about 2,000 people. Our last tour to Israel, we walked around the ancient city of David in about two or three hours. So you probably could go and measure that city with a measuring line. So here this guy goes off. Look at verse 3. And there was the angel who talked with me going out and another angel who was coming out to meet him who said to him, run, speak to this young man saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her and I will be the glory in her midst. So the angel runs after this guy and says, don't bother. Don't even try to measure this city. This city will one day overflow its boundaries because of divine blessing. One day this city won't have any walls. It will be packed with people and activity. People will be flooding outside of the city. There won't be any walls around the city. God says, I'll put a firewall around it. And this city will have the very presence of God in it. 
Again, very encouraging message to those guys that were rebuilding that temple. This place is going to be spectacular. And again, this is pointing to the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, the millennial kingdom. The Bible teaches that one day the city of Jerusalem will be the capital center city of the entire world. And Jesus will reign and rule from that very city one day. Okay, look at chapter 3. Look at verse 1. A fourth vision. It says, then he showed me Joshua. Remember, Joshua is the high priest. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Very important scene. Now he sees a courtroom setting. The angel of the Lord is there in the court. And I believe that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in this vision. This is the Son of God. Joshua, the high priest, is there. And Satan is standing at the right hand of Joshua, opposing him. Accusing him. No doubt dragging Joshua before the Lord saying, this guy's a sinner. This guy's a failure. How could he possibly serve as a priest? Verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? I love that. The Lord says, Satan, get lost. Shut up. Leave my servant alone. This is my servant. I've saved him like a brand plucked out of a fire. He belongs to me. Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. This is so beautiful. There's Joshua. He's in these filthy garments. The Lord says, change his clothes. Give him pure white clothing. And it's all symbolic. Joshua was a sinner. Joshua has blown it. He's a man. But the Lord has forgiven him. Cleansed him. I've saved you. You will continue to serve as my priest. And I think this vision was meant for Joshua. I think Joshua felt guilty. I think he felt responsible for being one of the leaders who let them quit working on the temple for like 16 years. I'm sure he's struggling. And how wonderful this was to hear the Lord say, you are forgiven. I will use you again. This is a scene for you and I as Christians. It applies to us. If you're a Christian here tonight, if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been forgiven of all your sins. You are no longer in dirty, filthy rags. You've been given clothes of righteousness. You have been totally and completely forgiven. And I'll tell you what, Satan likes to do the same thing. He likes to come and... Whisper in our ears. You call yourself a Christian? Look at you. You're a failure. Look at all the sins you've committed. He many times wants to do that. And his goal is to neutralize you and to get you to think, yeah, you know what? I I, I really shouldn't be doing anything for the Lord. I should step back from ministry. I should just sort of disappear. And, And Jesus would say, no, you're mine. 
I took you a brand out, out of the fire. I died for you. I saved you. I can restore you. I can forgive you. Man, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood has washed away all of your sins. All of them. So I find this vision very tender and very encouraging for the Christian who feels so guilty. You turn to the Lord, you repent, and there is restoration. Okay, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me. See, he's not getting any sleep that night. The angel talked with me, came back and wakened me. As a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Now, this is one of my favorite visions. So you have this. Golden candelabra, this golden lampstand, and on top of it is a giant golden bowl. And that bowl is filled with oil. Surrounding that lampstand are seven smaller lampstands, each with seven stems. So you got 49 stems. And you got pipes going from the bowl to each one of the stems, all 49 of them. It's a constant flow of oil. And then you have olive trees to the right and left, and there are golden pipes, as you read further down in the passage, that go straight from the olive tree right to the bowl from both. What is that? It's an automatic menorah. It is an automatic oil replenishing Menorah, a constantly running, endless supply of oil. And let me tell you, the priests would have been very, very excited to have that system. You know, like when man got all excited about the automatic coffee drip system, right? The automatic menorah system. Priests used to have to go every morning and night and trim the lamps. And if they wanted oil, you had to get the olives from the tree, crush them, press them, do all that work. Here, straight from the tree into the bowl, into the lampstands, everything is lit, constantly running, endless supply of oil. What a beautiful picture. And so he asks, what is it? What is meant by it? Look at verse 5. Verse chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to whom? Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my what? spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So here's Zerubbabel. He's the governor. He's the ruler. He's the leader of all this. He's got these Jews. He's in a city of ruins. They're trying to rebuild this temple. They're surrounded by all of these Gentile powers and opposition. He's the guy in charge. He's got to make it all happen. And he's probably down, he's probably discouraged, and he's probably trying to use all of his energy and might. And the Lord shows him this vision. And he says, Zerubbabel, we're going to get this done. And it's not by might, not by power, not by your strength, not by your effort, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. God says, Zerubbabel, I know it looks tough, but I'm going to do it. You don't have to do this in your own strength. I'm going to do it. This big mountain before you, we're going to make it a plain. By the power of the Holy Spirit. My friends, my Christian brothers and sisters, this is a vision for us as well. The Bible says that as Christians, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. If you are born again, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you. I'm telling you, you have a constantly flowing, endless supply of oil. The anointing power of the Holy Spirit in you. And it's good to be reminded of that because we, we forget You do not have to live the Christian life in the power of your own strength and might. You live by the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do ministry in the power of your own strength and might. You do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we just knew that, if we grabbed onto that day by day, if you're here tonight and you're weary and tired in ministry, or in living the Christian life, it's probably because you're doing it on your own strength at this point, and you need to yield yourself to the endless power of the Holy Spirit. And I have found that you are more aware of his power and presence in your life as you spend daily time with the Lord, as you, as you, as you stay close to Christ in your devotions and in your prayer, and you're holding on to him. Such a powerful truth. You don't have to do any of this by your own might, by your own strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Okay, look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. So in this vision, he sees a flying scroll and this is billboard size. This is 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. Completely unrolled, writing at the top and writing on the bottom, writing on both sides. What's that all about? Verse 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll. And every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, it shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. So it represents the law, and it represents the judgment that must come upon all lawbreakers. And one day, all lawbreaking, all sin will be judged completely and in total. One day there's coming a kingdom where there'll be no more sin, no more law-breaking. Again, I think this is looking forward to when Jesus comes again, the battle of Armageddon, setting up his millennial kingdom. Vision number seven, I I, got to say, this is the most bizarre one. Look at verse five. Of chapter 5. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It's a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up 
And this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. All right. This basket with the lead lid sort of floating around. You peek under that lid, and what do you find in the basket? A woman, which represents wickedness. Sorry, ladies. That's just, I just read what's there. Wickedness in a basket. What happens to her? Verse 8. He thrust her down into the basket, threw the lead cover over its mouth, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. So better for the ladies than that, angelic females. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, To build a house for it in the land of where? Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. What in the world? Well, this woman represents wickedness and idolatry. All of the pagan Babylonian wickedness and idolatry and witchcraft and all of that filthiness. That basket will be taken from Jerusalem to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. That basket will be put there in the city of Shinar. And the idea is it sits there to await judgment. And so, again, this is another very encouraging prophecy. This is God saying, I'm removing all of the the junk out of your land. I'm removing all of the idolatry, all of the wickedness. And it will be judged one day. By the way, the book of Revelation speaks about the great judgment of a mystery Babylon in the land of Babylon. So again, I think this is looking forward to the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, the purge of all that's wicked and idolatrous. One more vision. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot, black horses, with the third chariot, white horses, and with the fourth chariot, dappled horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. Now this is again another vision of what will happen when Christ returns. Angelic warriors going throughout the earth, conquering all of the enemies of Israel, all of the enemies of God's people. It's really uh, likened to the four apocalyptic horsemen that you read about in the book of Revelation. So another vision meant to encourage that small group of Jews that were trying to rebuild a temple in the city of Jerusalem. All of that was meant to encourage. God is saying, you hold on, people. Victory's coming. The kingdom's coming. The temple's coming. The new city's coming. The defeat of all your enemies is coming. And then there's something even better than all that coming. And that is a person. After these eight visions, 
it culminates with Zechariah being commanded to do something, which is a very symbolic act. Look at verse 9, chapter 6. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate what? Crown. And set it on the head of whom? Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest. All right, this is great. Make an elaborate crown. Gold and silver, like a royal crown. And place that crown on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, this is odd. This is odd. The office of high priest and king were not shared. Never shared. Separation of church and state, so to speak. A priest couldn't be a king. King couldn't be a priest. Also, remember Zerubbabel had royal blood in him. You could trace his family line through the royal blood back through the kings of Judah. And yet, don't put the crown on Zerubbabel. Put the crown on the high priest. Weird. And very symbolic. Because it's speaking of their Messiah who will one day come. In fact, look at verse 12. Then speak to him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne and he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be be between them both. The whole thing is... You got a great leader coming. You got a great Messiah coming. And when he comes, he is going to be your king and your priest. Church and state will be very safe together under King Jesus. So it's this beautiful promise. Hold on. Your king is coming. Okay. The rest of the book of Zechariah are messages, prophecies, prophetic messages that he brings to the people. The visions are over and these symbolic acts are over. Now we have these prophetic messages and in the book of Zechariah, he is speaking very clearly of the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, many of the New Testament Gospels quote from Zechariah. It's the most messianic, as I said, book in the Old Testament. And so there's fascinating prophecies concerning Jesus at his first coming and his second coming. And I'm just going to show you a few examples first of his first coming. Skip to chapter 9. And look at verse 9. I don't know if you knew that this prophecy was in the book of Zechariah, but you'll recognize it. Look at it. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a what? A colt, the foal of a donkey. Well known messianic prophecy that all the rabbis were familiar with. Here it is promised that your king, your priest, your Messiah 
when he presents himself to you one day formally in your city, he'll come riding in on a, on a donkey. The triumphal entry. It's so interesting. Jesus intentionally fulfilled this prophecy. You read for yourself. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus walks everywhere. He never rides. He walks everywhere. Except one day. And you remember on that one day, he stops at the top of the Mount of Olives. And he says, you're to go to a village and find a donkey. You're to bring that donkey to me. And he intentionally gets on that donkey. And intentionally rides into the city of Jerusalem. Just as the rabbis should have been looking for And remember, Zechariah says, rejoice, be glad. And there was a lot of rejoicing and fanfare and the waving of the palms and all of that. But then they would reject him. Isn't that sad? Now check this out. Verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is one of those examples in Old Testament prophecy where you have the first coming and the second coming sandwiched right together. This is the first coming, verse 9, second coming, verse 10. In verse 9, he rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Whenever kings did that, they came in peace. When Jesus comes a second time, he's riding a what? A white horse. And that means I've come in war and judgment. And when Jesus comes again, he shall speak peace to all the nations and set up his kingdom from sea to sea after the defeat of all of the enemies. Okay, here's another great example, great prophecy. Turn to chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11. Okay, before we read verse 12, please understand what's going on. In chapter 11, God has asked Zechariah to play the role of a shepherd. Play the role of a shepherd... To the house of Israel. And so he does that. And he does it very, very well. Look what the shepherd asks of Israel in verse 12. Then I said to them. If it is agreeable to you. Give me my wages. And if not refrain. So they wait out for my wages. What? 30 people. Now does that ring a bell to any of you? 30 pieces of silver. Okay, here's what's what's going on here. This is the good shepherd, and he's saying to his people Israel, he's saying, how much am I worth? I've done the job. How much are you going to pay me? And their answer is 30 pieces of silver, which was an absolute insult. According to the law, you could buy a slave who had been gored by an ox for 30 pieces of silver. They're saying to him, oh, you're about worth the price of a handicapped slave. An insult. So look what the Lord tells Zechariah to do. Verse 13, and the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. That's sarcastic right there. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the what? The house of the Lord. What's that? That's the temple area. For the potter. 
Don't insult me. The good shepherd isn't worth 30 pieces of silver. Throw it away. Give it to the potters. So, Matthew chapter 27 quotes those two verses, Zechariah. Why? Because you remember Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, right? Then later, in a state of remorse, what did he do with the 30 pieces of silver? He threw it into the temple courts, the house of the Lord, and those guys picked up that money and bought a potter's field. Oh, and by the way, Judas committed suicide, and where was he buried? In that very potter's field. And all of that sort of foreshadowed here in Zechariah. Gang, so many of the details of the first coming of Christ were prophesied in advance. This is written 500 years before Christ came. It's an incredible book. Okay. Now I want you to see how it describes the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes again. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So when Jesus comes again, there will be a physical preservation of Israel. A physical protection of Israel. Again, the second coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. Here's the part that Zechariah adds that I just love and adore. When Jesus comes again that second time, there's also going to be a spiritual restoration for the nation of Israel. Look down at verse 9 of chapter 12. Truly one of the most beautiful prophecies in all of the Bible. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad, Rimon, and in the plain of Megiddo. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 13. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Folks, in that day, And in the days leading up to the second coming of Christ, Israel, all of Israel, the nation, the state of Israel, will finally recognize their Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. It says that they will even look upon the one whom they pierced. And there will be a great mourning Mourning and repentance. And on that day, a fountain is opened up. And the entire state, the entire nation of Israel will be saved and returned to the Lord. I just, you know, I just, I can't wait to see that. You know, in the church age today, mostly Gentiles are getting saved, right? There are many Jews. There are some Jews that get saved. 
And it, but it's just so sad to me that the chosen people of God have failed to recognize their Messiah. And yet you read this and you know one day they will. And it's going to be a glorious, glorious, wonderful, spiritual deliverance of Israel. One more. I know I'm hitting you with a lot tonight. But I'll tell you, I love this book. There's one more detail about the second coming of Christ that I have to show you. That you don't find anywhere else except basically Zechariah. Look at chapter 14. Verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. So again, here we go with Armageddon. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. All of the nations gathering against Israel in those last days, and they'll have quite a bit of success in, in suffering and until Jesus comes again. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Here's the detail. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem's on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north, and half of it shall move towards the south. When Christ comes again, he defeats everyone basically in the air. All of the armies that have gathered against Israel. And there's, I mean, the book of Revelation says it's not even a fight. Jesus comes and blows them away just by the word of his mouth. Ultimately, he touches down on planet Earth. And where does he touch down? On the Mount of Olives. Now I ask you, where did he leave planet Earth the first time? He ascended from the Mount of Olives. You remember he sent it, and all the guys are sitting there. And finally the angels tap them. Hey. The way you saw him leave, you'll see him return. I personally believe the last place his feet occupied on the Mount of Olives will be the very place that his feet touches down. And this right here predicts that there will be a spectacular earthquake. That the Mount of Olives will literally split in two from north to south. And it will leave a giant valley running east to west. Okay? Look at verse 8. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. So there is a split. There is a giant valley that goes east to west right through Jerusalem. That valley will connect two bodies of water. To the west, the Mediterranean Sea. Big body of water. To the east, a body of water known today as the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. And believe me, I've been in the Dead Sea. It's dead. There isn't a thing that lives in the Dead Sea. It's like getting into a vat of oil. Ezekiel tells us that this water will be absolutely crystal clear. That it will stretch from sea to sea. And eventually the Dead Sea will become, you'll be able to fish in the Dead Sea. Teeming with life. 
with this connection to the Mediterranean Sea through living water that flows through Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to look so much more different. And I got to tell you, as somebody who's stood on the Mount of Olives many times and been to Jerusalem many times to see how it looks now, it's going to, I can't wait to see what it looks like then. Bottom line, man, we have a book of victory here, don't we? If you belong to the Lord, doesn't matter how difficult days get here. He will set everything right. Judgment will fall. And those that have received him, man, will be victorious with him. Are you among that number? Are you among that number? So this is a book that celebrates the second coming of Christ and the total victory that's coming. But tonight we need to remember that that second coming and the victory of that second coming could not be possible unless there's a first coming. When our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left heaven, became a baby, born in Bethlehem, born in a barn, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lied in a manger, to grow up to face the cross of Calvary, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Before he gets that golden crown, he took the crown of thorns, didn't he? You don't get the crown without the crown of thorns. We don't get the joy of the second coming without the first coming. My brother and my sister in Christ, don't ever forget what the Lord has done for you and the price that he paid so that ultimately... We can have victory. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Father, what an awesome book you've given us, Lord. Thank you for showing us not everything, but quite a bit of detail of how things are going to uh, resolve in this world. Lord, we are so grateful for your power. And we do. We look forward to your kingdom come. Yet as we close tonight, may we be reminded again of your first coming. That season that we celebrate this time of year, your great sacrifice. Lord, we are totally lost if you don't, if you don't, if you don't do what you did. hopelessly lost in our sins. And yet you came, you left heaven and you paid the price for our sins and you took that crown of thorns upon yourself. All that suffering, all that sacrifice that we can be forgiven. And Lord, as your people, we can live for you today. Sharing you with others. Lord, we bow before you. Lord, for those who know you tonight, um, for those of us who know you, we, we adore you afresh for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. Lord, I would like to pray for anyone here tonight who's never received Christ. 
never received your gift of salvation. If that's you. Right now we live between the first coming and the second coming. It is the age of opportunity. It is the age of grace. Have you received him? Ask him into your heart tonight. Simple prayer. Say, Lord, I believe. Lord, I thank you for what you've done for me. I receive what you've done for me. Be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made for me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I receive you right now. Make me a son or daughter in your family. Save me. Fill me with your spirit, with your oil. Help me to serve you with the remainder of the days that I have left on this planet. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.